House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Who we have joining us is a, a great author. He's got uh, a few books out now. And uh, first time to the show, we're going to invite Paul Sanders. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Al. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, it's always good to have new talent on the show. Always. Um, so first, let's, let's tell people, because you haven't been on this show, um, what got you into writing true crime? What, what, what drew you into this whole thing? Uh, three years ago, three years ago this week, as a matter of fact, I was uh, selected as a juror for a high-profile case. It was the state of Arizona versus Marissa Duvall. Uh She was accused of bludgeoning her husband to death with a hammer. And uh, out of almost a thousand jurors called. I was one of 16 finally selected. After about four months of trial, um, I became one of the 12 deliberating jurors. It was a three-phase trial, and uh, ultimately we had to decide whether her penalty was her life. At the end of that trial, it really changed my life in a lot of ways. And at the end of the trial, I asked the uh, judge and all the attorneys there, I said, are there are there any uh, issues if I write a book about this? It was an amazing experience. And I was given the go-ahead to do it, as long as, of course, uh, I made the court look fairly good. And uh, I wrote my first book called Brain Damage, A Juror's Tale, it's on Amazon, and uh, that's what began my true, writing, true crime writing career. At, right after that book, I attended the retrial of Jody Arias. Our prosecutor was Eric Basta, but it was originally scheduled to be Juan Martinez, and I was intrigued by the parallels, the similarities, and uh, decided to write another book called Why Not Killer? a juror's perspective, the Jody Arias death penalty trial. And then uh, I moved to Washington after I published that and became a part of the Carnation Murders trial. And hence, I have a new book coming out April 10th called Banquet of Consequences, a juror's plight, the Carnation Murders trial of Michelle Anderson. Wow. So as a juror, as a person that is um, sworn to uh, uphold the law and and um, either convict or acquit someone, was it what you thought it would be? And I mean that in in a lot of different aspects, mentally, socially. Um, did you feel the pressure? And what was it really like? It was nothing, the experience was nothing like I thought it would be. Uh, we have, we have preconceptions based on what we see on television, based on movies, what have you, and the, the burden of being a juror in that position to decide life or death was nothing like I expected, and, uh, and like I said, the experience really changed my life. It, it, it honestly, it begins with the Wadir that, uh, or the segment, the written segment of Wadir, the questionnaire. And it, it is a, it's an integrity test of yourself. And when you start from there and then under, begin that process of understanding the law, crime, um, motivation, that burden is, is, it's indescribable. I've often said, and a lot of jurors will say the same thing in, in these bigger cases, um, that it, it, it's just nothing like you would expect. 
Right. Did you find it overwhelming? Um, was there too much to learn at, in in such a short time? Well, it, it, it was not as, it's funny you mentioned that, but it, it was not so much what we've learned. It was, it was that, it was the items we didn't learn. It's that undercurrent, that reading between the lines, that understanding. Um, once you accept, once you, once you're selected and you've accepted that burden and, and you're sworn in, it's, uh, it's a very humbling, humbling experience. You feel like you're on stage. You you feel that the the burden of the trial is on you. You are you are blessed with the fact that you have eleven others with you that you can you can share with when you hit that stage. Um, but it, it honestly, so much of it comes down to what you don't see and what's what's allowed in the deliberation room and what's not allowed. But the burden, I think, in in any case, every juror is is committed to see it through to the end. What you don't imagine is that you're going to carry it with you long after the trial is over. Right. You know, is it more of the emotion that you carry with you of of, of the case itself? The, the emotion is is significant. Um, it begins with the vladir. The vladir, the, the the questions you ask on paper, uh, they have a randomness to it, randomness to it, and they also have a uh, very personal aspect of it. Um, in 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 that in my case, to be to be straight up, one of the questions was whether. Um, I had a close experience with domestic violence. And originally on the Vladir, I had written, no, I don't live with many people, basically, was the idea of it. And later on, a similar question was asked. I had to back up, think about it, and re-answer the question I had earlier answered and said, yes, I did have a close experience. With it. What I didn't know is is how important that would become in the jury room. And uh, when you have to stand up in front of, not have to, but part of deliberations, what what comes out is you can, you find that the jury basically has has kind of four different elements as to why they were picked, why they were picked. Three of our jurors had experienced domestic violence. Uh, a number of other jurors had been in life and death situations aside from death, um, domestic violence. Um, you learned that uh, you had jurors that were clearly picked as pro-prosecution, and you found that jurors, some jurors were picked as, as pro-defense or more likely defined for the defense. So it's a really, really interesting, um, challenging process. But when when you each end up sharing your stories and those things are revealed as, as you go along, it, it's personal for every year. Uh, but the most astounding thing that comes out of it is when you walk into a jury room, you, you're process in the phases. You have the guilt phase. That was pretty easy for us to reach. Then we had the phase, the qualifying phase, uh, whether this defendant was going to be qualified for the death penalty. Um, and then you have that death penalty phase. Once the, the game changes when you get to the death penalty phase because everything then, instead of just relying on facts, you are now relying on your own path to make a decision. So my experience became with domestic violence became important when we were deciding mitigating factors or if those mitigating factors existed. 
So the each juror, yeah, is a personal thing. It's something that you end up taking with you the rest of your life. You do see it through to the end, but most importantly, you find somewhere in there, and we did, we found it at the very end of the first phase, uh, you find that the victim becomes just as, becomes just as important as the defendant. And to each juror, that may come at a different time during deliberations, but it does come. Right. Right. And uh, it did with us, and we didn't expect it. Right, and it's a surprise. And, and I know, let's see, in your in your second book, The Why Not Killer, about Jody Arias, um, is it also a factor if it's a woman that's up to be killed? I have had that question before. Um, it's a it's a factor equal as if as if it were. A man being tried. It, re- it, re- it, it makes a difference only within the con- within the context of the crime that was committed. For example, um, well, I, I don't think you know what. Thinking about it, I, I don't think it it does, except within the context of she was married. Or no, in Arius' case, she was married, but um, only in the context of it was a relationship and she was a woman. But I don't think it does. I really do not. Well, I just say that because, you know, we've had um, only 10 women killed for the death penalty. And just recently, the two in Florida, because I was just doing another case. So it doesn't seem like we put women to death even a fraction of what we do for the men. So I'm trying to figure out why that is then. Because uh, they're committing just as bad a crimes. I mean, Jody Arias was just as, you know, uh, that was just as... As awful as it gets. Yeah, that was as savage as any crime that uh, men have done. And, and uh, now if it was a man that killed his, his girlfriend in this situation... You know, I know it's different people then, but I just wonder if Jody Arias was a male, if there would have been as much difficulty putting Jody Arias to death. Well, you have to remember with Jody Arias, there were 11 of 12 jurors who who said she should have been put to death, at least in the second trial. Right. 11 of 12, and they were committed on it. Um I think the likelihood of it be, of of uh, women being on trial for their life have a higher likelihood of a jury hanging, but I don't think it is necessarily because of their gender. Um, I, I it's because of the person, and in and then. In a couple of these cases, um, you have jurors who were not entirely honest throughout the process. So, it is a matter of, is it because Jody was a woman that that, that happened? I, I can't tell you. But I know it, uh, each juror is going to come from their own, their own individual world, whether gender affects it or not. Um, I think less women are put in that situation. I don't know. That's a good question now. That's yeah. a good question. And I don't know if, if that can ever be answered. Well, it might be a combination. It might also not be just the gender, but quite often female killers do it in a more subtle way, poisoning and uh, not as aggressive of a way. Seems like a lot of our serial killer or killers that are females that go up for death row are not Jody Arias. Or they're not, you know, stabbing and shooting someone uh, to death overly. Um, th- that might be a combination of it as well. It could be, but in the experience of the context of my three books, I have a woman who put a hammer in her husband's head five times, premeditated. We have Joey Arias, who who stabbed 
tried to salivate her 29 times, cut his throat, and put a bullet in his head. And then we have on my latest book, Michelle Anderson, who, with her boyfriend, executed her family of six with a 9mm and a three fifty seven. All of them deserve the death penalty. Right. 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 But but (laughs) there are some really awful statistics that go with that, and prosecutors know it when uh, they decide to bring a case forward. I think, yes, that that tendency to bring a woman forward to put her up for the death penalty is going to be a little more difficult for prosecutors. But they're also running a, a uh, statistical game. If, if in Michelle Anderson's case, my third killer, in her case, the, the state went after, uh, they didn't go after the death penalty. The jury was obligated to find, uh, find in the guilt stage, and that was it. Um, but, the statistic goes like this. One percent of all trials that result in a life sentence for the defendant are turned over, whereas 70 percent of all trials where the defendant, male or female, is put up for the death penalty, 70 percent of those cases are turned over. Well, so yeah. It's a difficult proposition to begin with, and the statistics have to be practiced. Yeah. Okay, well, let's and and let's start to get to your your newest book, which comes out here April tenth, and um, this focuses on uh, the trial of Michelle Anderson or the murder trials of Michelle Anderson, and it's the Carnation murders as they're known. Uh, and Carnation is a smaller town just in Washington here, um, about twenty five miles eastern of uh, Seattle. So uh, maybe give us a rundown on the actual story, the crime. All right, this, this crime occurred uh, 10 years ago this year. It was on December 24, 2007, Christmas Eve, when Michelle Anderson, aged about 26 years old, and her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, about the same age, walked up the front steps of her parents' home, Wayne and Judy Anderson. In her clothes, she carried a 9mm gun. Matt Rowe, in the back of his pants, carried a 357 Magnum. He also carried an empty box with him because when they walked up the steps and before they knocked on the door, they knew that Judy, Michelle's mother, was likely to be rapping her final Christmas presents. They were going to celebrate that Christmas Eve as they did every year as a family. Within 45 minutes of when they were there, Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe, a roast was cooking in the oven, trees were laid out on the coffee table, television was on with the football game. Uh, within 45 minutes, they were both shot to death. The killers then spent the next two and a half hours, two to two and a half hours cleaning up. They waited for the rest of the family to show up, which was Michelle's brother, Scott, his wife, Erica, and their two children, Olivia, who was five, and Nathan, who had just turned three two weeks prior. They came up the steps, expecting to celebrate Christmas Eve with their parents, and within the hour, the next four were shot to death. That became known as the Carnation Murders. Joseph McEnroe's trial was held about six months prior to Michelle's trial. He was uh, put up for the death penalty, the jury hung, and then Michelle Anderson was tried. And I attended every day of the trial. And uh, drawn from the prosecutor's closing statements from the title, Banquet of Consequences, which is based on Robert Lewis's, Robert Lewis Stevenson's quote, 
everybody must one day, sooner or later, sit down to the banquet of passive racism. And uh, to his credit, I titled the book, and the book is called Banquet of Consequences, mm-hmm. A Juror's Plight. And the plight uh, really has to do with that penalty or no death penalty. What, what did you learn from this case? What was different about this one than the previous ones that you had been through and written about? These high-profile first-degree murder cases, each one of them within themselves is terrifying. Right. This one I was particularly afraid to approach because it had to do with six victims. The thing that most frightened me about approaching this was there were two children involved. And I, I don't think there's any true crime writer in the world or juror or anyone who wants to be involved in something that has to do with something so heinous. Yeah. When I when I wrote Banquet of Consequences, the, the other thing that bothered me was, or that I was nervous about, was, you know, this girl clearly should be up for the death penalty. So it kind of bothered me that the, the state only went after the guilt phase and then let the judge decide the sentence. He could not choose death. He could only choose life without parole or or uh, life with parole. At, at one point in this book, looking for the end of the book, um, I decided to go interview the other killer, Joseph McEnroe. Because as would be expected in the Shell trial, you're not going to get a lot of information on him. So in my effort to rectify his part in the murders. I went out to Walla Walla Prison and I sat down with him for six and a half hours. And what I learned were two things ultimately. Killers lie and there's never, ever an excuse for murder. You know, do we really know why um, the murder happened? Uh, I've heard that it was to do with money, um, but but I, I seem to think there's got to be more to it than that. The motive part of it was was clearly money, but these these killers were not bright. And it's uh, another thing you learn in, in doing this business is killers are not all that smart. Uh, Arius would like to have pretended she was smart, just like Marissa DeVault would like to have pretended she was smart. This girl, Michelle, was was not smart at all. She was a spoiled, a spoiled brat who did not want to grow up. Her motive was actually jealousy, in my opinion. She was jealous of her brother and the fact that he had gone off, gotten married, and had children. She was extremely jealous, jealous of his wife and jealous of the fact that Michelle didn't have his attention anymore. So a lot of this was just pure, unadulterated rage and anger. Loosely, you could say it was mine, but even even that factor in this trial was inconsistent. At one point, she said it was for three thousand dollars to repair her nineteen eighties beat up Iraq Camaro. Uh, but later on, at a confession with uh, Detective Hopkins, that number changed to forty thousand dollars. Hmm. I sadly don't think it was just mine. I think it really was a jealousy factor and the fact that this girl would not grow up and she expected everybody, including her parents, to wait on her. She lived on her parents' property um, rent-free. And at one point, the parents, Wayne and Judy, told her, look, you got to start supporting some rent. In other words, grow up. Either pay rent or move on. 
and uh, she didn't like that. So, now, but what what happened? So the death sentence did not happen in this case. Trial and sentencing. How did it end up? I think jurors from both the trial of McEnroe and Michelle Anderson. And I will tell you, in, in about every instance, there there was not a time in our interviews, or yeah, there was that the emotion comes, and there were times that we, as even though I wasn't a juror on this case, uh, but when you're discussing this with jurors and the fate of those two children, the the emotions there. So it was hard. But for jurors, all this, all this is fresh in their mind. Um, it was, it was McEnroe that was really, really difficult for me. It was difficult because I knew what he had done. I knew what he'd been convicted of. And, uh, to look at this man and, and try and look at him as an equal human being was almost impossible. Um, I remember in this interview, I kept looking at his at his fingers. When you're in a penitentiary, a maximum security, it's it's you go in with your shirt, your pants, your shoes, no laces, no belt, no tools, no notepad, no pen, and your hands have to be up on top of this table as you sit across from from that convicted. And I remember I kept looking at his fingers and trying to understand how could this person, how could anybody squeeze a trigger of a gun into, not to mention the other four, but into a five and a three-year-old. It was, uh, it was difficult. Um, it was difficult when I left because um, when I left the prison, I went to Seaside, Oregon, which is where Memorial to the Andersons are, and uh, I remember that long drive through the gorge thinking what a beautiful world we live in but where do these killers come from how and then the victims who who never knew they were going to be murdered it just it's such a shame and a blight on our world so that's why I'm determined to somehow find the good that can come out of these out of these horrendous murder trials and uh, I think we did actually with Banquet. So that's kind of what people can hope to get out of uh, reading the book is to uh, to come to some resolve and and perhaps find something good out of these uh, um, horrendous cases. And it's immensely immensely difficult, but yes, to find the good. Where where in the process of justice do we sometimes? Maybe detour and go in the wrong direction. Uh, where, where can we improve what we do in the jury deliberation room? Where can we improve in voir dire and how we select? Um, in McEnroe's case, uh, it's my feeling that there were at least, at least two of, two of the four jurors that hung I honestly believe that they were anti-death penalty before they completed their voir dire. And that would be what would, what one would typically call a self-juror. And, uh, what can we do better to ferret that information out ahead of time? What we want in our jury system, what we want in our court system is integrity, and we want honesty no matter what. Our job is not, as a juror, is not to decide somebody's fate based on what we personally feel, but what the facts of the crime were, and then what the law tells us to do. And that honesty begins the moment you fill out the written part of the voir dire. So that's an example of one way that uh, we, we strive to look for good that can come out of the bad. What's your opinion of the 
legal system? I believe in our legal system, a thousand percent, but it is run by human beings, and human beings are not perfect. So that is the balance that 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 we're all going to struggle to find. Right, and where do you where do you, where do you want to go next when the after this book comes out and? Uh, and everybody reads it as they should. Um, where, what project do you see yourself working on next? Well, my next book is, which I'm working on right now, is uh, the second book on the Carnation Murders. I want the reader to take the same journey I took. I met Joseph McEnroe. I made an assessment of him when I wrote Banquet, and I was wrong. And I learned I was wrong by by going through all of his court testimony. So I'm going to take the reader on that journey. Uh, this book is going to be called Beyond the Pale, Rogue Juror, the Joseph McEnroe Death Penalty Trial. It will be released on Christmas Eve 2017 in honor of the victims, Wayne, Judy, Scott, Erica, Olivia, and Nathan, in their memory on the 10th anniversary of their murders. So that is, that'll keep me busy until uh, the end of the year. Oh, yeah. Always lots of work. Uh, <laughs> and um, so if people want to get in contact with you or if they have some information, uh, do you have a website or uh, site? Absolutely. Okay. I've got a, uh, you can find me on Facebook under Paul Sanders. I'm also, um, my email is lowercase, the 13th juror, md, at yahoo.com. And then my website is the 13th juror, md.com. And that's where I've got all my books listed. And uh, I post when I do do trials. That's where I post all my uh, daily perspectives. Of course, I'm on Twitter, too. Oh, Everybody's on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, again, thank you. Uh, our guest has been Paul Sanders, and he's the author of the new book coming out April 10th, Banquet of Consequences. And that's a juror's plight, on, and it's on pre-order now. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, thank you, listeners. Joining us is, uh, he's new to the show, and uh, he's got an interesting series of novellas coming out, and the first one is out now, and it's called The, the Mulatto Ripper, and it's the Miss, Cite, Miss Clytie Cases, book one. And um, I'll get all corrected on that as we talk. So, <laughs> welcome to the show, James Jeffrey Paul. Thank you, Alan, and uh, I appreciate your inviting me on your show. Now, so, the M Mulatto Ripper, what, what is this uh, series about? Um, kind of what's, what's the idea behind it? Well, um... I've always been fascinated by crimes that are virtually unknown, that you just come across vague references to in newspaper articles or in, um, say, uh, just little, uh, uh, say, just a sentence or two in some ancient... Uh, Encyclopedia of Crime, and um, I uh, I can tell you exactly when I first heard of this case. I, w I, I was very fascinated once by the still unsolved case of the Axeman of New Orleans, and uh, who was Huey Long, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, um, and um, it made a mention that 
in one of the New Orleans, I think it was in the New Orleans Times, Picky Hewn, I was looking up an article, and it said, several years ago in Atlanta, a man killed a number of Negro women by slashing their throats and then stole their shoes. And I just thought, huh? And then, uh, several years later, uh, uh, full confession, uh, Michael Newton, the crime historian, whom I'm sure you know, oh, yeah. is a uh, is a friend of mine on Facebook. And because I learned of the second book in my series from an entry in one of his numerous crime encyclopedias, I'm dedicating book number two to him. But when I was looking through one of his crime encyclopedias, I learned about the Atlanta Ripper, and I learned that now no one knows now with most as with most unsolved serial killers, no one really seems to know exactly how many victims he claimed. But between nineteen eleven and nineteen twelve, somewhere between probably 15 or 16 and 20, the figures vary, um, women were uh, killed, they were, um, had their throats cut, and um, were some, and sometimes had their genitals mutilated as well uh, by an unknown assailant. And uh, he, he was called the Atlanta Ripper. And at first, there was news about him in the local Atlanta press. And But he never, but to show you that sometimes economics trumps humanity, he really started getting lots of publicity when um, black serving women who worked in the uh, uh, wealthier ha- houses owned by whites on the, quote, nicer side of town were so afraid, were, too, were so afraid to go home lest they encounter the Ripper that they either, that they either were asked to just stay or they'd uh, beg their uh, male employers to drive the, to take them home. And suddenly it became a tremendous financial pain in the neck for uh, the portion of the more affluent portion of Atlanta that kept black servants. And so suddenly the river was all over the place and his body count began to rise. And um, as far as I know, now, please forgive me, I don't have my novel right with me, nor do I have the only book ever written on the case, but which I highly recommend. It's by a fellow, a Georgian named Jeffrey Wells, called The Atlanta Ripper, a nice, very well-researched short book. And The Ripper was only seen twice, once as a... Um, black uh, serving girl was leaving out the back door into the back alley of her um, employer's residence, suddenly she saw a very, she described him as a tall, heavy-set black man um, creeping towards her, and um, if memory serves, he'd taken off his shoes um, and I think he was holding him in his hands or something, so she wouldn't hear him. And she she screamed and ran, you know, banged on the door, ran back inside. And what was most incredible, which really showed you that this, while this character, this Ripper, didn't want to get caught, he was also just displayed this breathtaking arrogance and when the um, her employer went outside, the Ripper 
was still there, standing in the same spot, just sort of staring at him insouciantly. And then the ripper took off and ran. But so you can see that this was a very careful, very crafty and cunning killer. But at the same time, I mean, think about it. You're committing a murder. You're, you're planning on committing a murder. Your victim sees you, screams for employer. Her employer runs inside. He comes out. And then the killer's just still standing there like he doesn't have a truck, uh, like he doesn't have a care in the world or something. And I thought, what incredible arrogance. And then what was even worse, um, the Ripper's worst night of slaughter happened in the summer of 1911. One night, a woman named Lena Sharp, who was 40 years old, if memory serves, went out, told her daughter, I'm going to the grocery store to get some groceries. But her mom never returned, and her daughter began to grow nervous. And, uh, and then she went out looking for her mom, and suddenly she encountered, uh, again, the same description, a tall, heavy-set, well-dressed black man and something, and he, there he was standing in her path, and something about his manner made her very nervous. And again, he had the unparalleled arrogance to say, why are you looking at me like that? I never bother girls like you. And, but then, as she just hurried past him, he pulled out his knife and, laughing, stabbed her several times in the back, then ran away. And luckily, she survived, but it, as it turned out, her mother was already dead. She'd caught, she'd uh, encountered the Ripper shortly after he killed her mom, and the case, though, many, though, though, as in many cases, especially cases that involved black suspects, needless to say, many, many innocent black suspects were hauled in and given the third degree. Some were even charged individually with some of the murders. I, if, I, if memory serves, they all either got off or one might have uh, been convicted, but then was released on a technicality. But after after a year or so, it was evident that the Ripper was gone, and he's never been seen since. And so I realized that I'd found this fascinating case, and just those images, this tall black man creeping up on someone in an alley without with his shoes off and then just standing there when he's discovered or after he's just killed a woman, he encounters another woman who he doesn't realize is his victim's daughter and then says, why are you looking at me like that? I never bother women like you. I mean, why didn't he just say, of course I'm the ripper, but, I never choose girls like you for my victims. It was just, now, this fellow was crafty. He didn't want to get caught, but his arrogance just, oof, I keep thinking about it. Every time I think about it, it's like a punch to the solar plexus. It just yeah. takes my breath. <laughs> yeah. how, how much do you think is arrogance and how much is the time? You know, we're looking at 1911. Atlanta had maybe 150,000 people, but segregation was big. Uh, did this really cause a concern amongst white women and white areas? Because they, they were still trying to keep black, black communities separate from them. They didn't want black owners owning in their community. And it was just several years since the Atlanta riots of 1906. Right. So, um, go ahead. So I was just wondering how much, maybe he felt empowered by that, in a sense? 
because his his victims were all what were they in their twenties and they were black females. Um, well, actually, the reason the reason the book is called the Mulatto Ripper, it's what my fictional detective it's the nickname my fictional detective gives him because most most though not all of of the rippers of definite victims were of mixed race. Uh, in fact, uh, one white newspaper noted that, uh, uh, what was the phrase, that the women were of mixed race, but he killed no out-and-out colored women, as if that somehow mattered. So I, but the apparently the killer himself was very dark-skinned and he and just my armchair psychoanalysis the fact that he worked at night uh, sometimes and never during the day and that he could at least afford a nice fancy suit made me think he must have been at least he must have had a job in the black community and he must have been at least prosperous enough that he could afford to splurge a little on what he wore. So I, I, I don't think it was a case of, um, I don't know really. All I know is that serial killers, uh, uh, now this may just be, this may just be one of the uh, uh, old saws that are tossed about and that you hear some FBI um, analysts say on TV, and then, of course, it becomes accepted wisdom, and then, of course, you hear another, uh, in a few weeks another FBI analyst go on TV, oh, uh, I've heard a lot about that, but that's under nonsense. Serial killers really do be. And then uh, FBI agent number three comes on. Absurd. Serial killers always follow the C pattern. No, no, no. And then says agent number four. It's a mixture of A and C or B and A, but never A and C. <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't think much of I don't want to sound like Donald Trump, but I'm beginning to doubt a lot of expert opinion that I hear on TV a lot. How are these being released? And like um, the first ones out now, what how what's the cycle of how they're going to be put out? Well, Lee and I have finished pretty much editing books two, three, and four already. So um, Lee seems to think it won't take too long. We'd like to bring them out maybe once a month or maybe a little more than a month. And But two, three, and four are practically done, and I'm uh, going to try to finish editing numbers five, six, and seven and um, get them to leave as soon as possible so we can get to work with them all. Um, oh, by the way... Um, uh, it amuses me that you live in Seattle. I was in Tacoma early last October to do some research on... Uh, have you ever heard of Jake Bird, the uh, Tacoma axe killer? You know, I don't think I do. I do. Uh, he claimed to have committed at least a dozen or more murders across the nation. He was in his mid-40s over a period of a couple of decades, from the late 20s to the late 40s. And um, they he usually killed his victims with an axe, but since he killed his last two victims, uh, a mother, um, Bertha Klute, and her daughter in Tacoma, in um, 1947, um, he was called the Tacoma Axe Killer, and he was hanged in Washington in 49. And um, 
it was so incredible. I uh, went to, um, I believe it was the Tacoma Historical Society, where they had this beautiful, beautiful room with a really tall ceiling, and um, they have a huge collection of um, of uh, clips on Jake Bird and lots of documents about him, and. Um, the uh, they even had showed me a book I had no idea existed about uh, by called Prison Doctor by a prison doctor in Washington at the time, and more than half the book deals with Jake Bird. That really flummoxed me. And um, the house where the Klutz were murdered uh, was less than a mile from there, so they just gave me driving directions. And after I'd done all my research, I drove right to the murder house, which was now boarded up. I don't know what they were going to do with it, maybe tear it down, but that was quite a that was quite a thrill, you know, just an unexpected thrill in just a short period of time finding so much information. And Jake Bird is in uh, book number seven. He's the principal character. Well, there we go. Now we know. Uh, well, um, well, uh, I'm afraid though that uh, I didn't toss you. I didn't toss Seattle a bone. Uh, I'm sorry, Miss Clyde doesn't meet Ted Bundy or the Green River Killer or uh, anybody else. So sorry, uh, Seattle strikes out. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, it's the way it goes sometimes. Well, well, we'll have your uh, book posted on our website as well and information so if anybody's looking for it they can go right to the website one click purchase definitely recommend it very interesting story uh, great writer our guest has been james thank you james jeffrey paul and the book is called the mulatto ripper and this is edition one that's out right now yeah so thank you for being uh, on the show to find out more about our show guests or listen to a previous show visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com show is over for now was it as good for you as it was for me well good night this has been a production of something weird media i'll be back